The state we're in, how we treat each other around the world. Real voices, real stories, from Radio Netherlands Worldwide. This is The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Today's show is called Because I Had To. My first guest is originally from Iraq and is now a Christian, but he didn't grow up that way. My name is Joseph Fadel, and I belong to a clan descended from the Prophet Muhammad. Joseph is a pseudonym. It was his pen name for the book he wrote about his conversion to Christianity called The Price to Pay. But being a descendant of the Prophet in an overwhelmingly Muslim country like Iraq meant there wasn't much of a price and way more privileges. No one calls me by my first name. They call me Master or My Lord. That's how we're known in the Shia community. So what kind of privileges come with being in a family like this? Well, the clan is actually divided into two parts. One has religious status and the other has social status. My family has more social status. We don't have a religious title. We're actually a pretty big family of 20 children, 10 boys and 10 girls. And to give you some idea of how we're regarded, whenever we visit places in Iraq, like the South, no one would ever receive me without kissing my hands. Can we say that your family were aristocrats in a way? Not so much aristocrats in the material sense. Of course, we did have money, but it wasn't about that. We were still part of that clan. We were descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, and people would show respect to you for that. Because of his family's special status, Joseph didn't have to work a day in his life. But he did get conscripted into the army. Joseph was being brought to his barracks when he was told he had to share his room with a Christian. I was carrying my belongings with me while we were walking towards the barracks. And when the soldier accompanying me mentioned that word Christian and that I had to share my room with a Christian, oh, my belongings just fell onto the floor. Why? Well, there were many reasons, but the main one is that I'm a descendant of Muhammad. And my father's the head of this big clan. There are lots of Christians living in Iraq, but I'd never actually seen one before. All I knew about Christians is what I'd read in the Quran. And the impression that I got from the Quran was that Christians worshipped three gods because of the Holy Trinity, and that they were dirty people. They were Gentiles. And if a Christian ever came up to me to shake his hand, I wouldn't even take it. Really? That's very serious. And and here you are, about to share a room with a Christian. I asked the soldier if he could take me back to the sergeant so I could get another room. But the soldier told me that the sergeant had already left, so I had no choice but to spend the night in that room. Okay. So in you went. What happened? When we came in, the soldier introduced me to the Christian guy, Masoud. But he didn't even extend his hand to me. He told me that he had some kind of allergy, so he preferred to eat alone. And I felt he was avoiding me. But I was happy with that, because I didn't want to be there anyway. What did he look like, your new Christian roommate? I don't really know how to describe Masoud. He was an older guy. He was born in 1944. His generation was called to serve in the army by Saddam Hussein, but many of them were too old. So you walk into the room. You don't want to shake his hand. He doesn't offer his hand. What happens? 
After that first night, I had a good feeling about Masoud. And I started liking him more and more, and I even asked the soldier after that night if I could stay in that room. Because Masoud struck me as a very respectful and good-hearted kind of guy. And I was even thinking about inviting him to become Muslim. You guys sort of hit it off, and clearly you started to talk. When did religion come up? Well, I really wanted him to convert to Islam, not only for Masoud's sake, but also for my own. Because if I bring in someone new into the faith, I'd receive extra credit. In heaven, I'd get 72 virgins and I'd score points with my whole family. Because one day, I was going to take over being the head of the clan from my father. I actually thought it'd be pretty easy to convert him. In fact, during the first holiday I took from the army to visit my family, I bought Masoud a horse as a gift. So if and when Masoud converted to Islam, he'd get to ride on the horse. A horse? It's a very expensive gift, especially if it's a female horse, much more expensive than a male. And I could afford it. And besides the horse, I was also planning to buy Masoud some white clothes and throw him a big party where he'd then say the words that would make him a Muslim. And I really thought I could do it. Joseph then asked Masoud for a copy of the Bible so he could prove to him Christianity was the wrong religion. Masoud agreed to bring him a Bible, but on one condition, that Joseph read his own holy book, the Quran, first. I thought it was a weird request for him to ask me to read the Quran first. Because I read the Quran every day and I read it the whole month of Ramadan. I'd read it at all the right times and I'd recite it just as I was asked to do. But we were always reciting it. We were never really asked to understand it. And did you fulfill his request? Did you go and reread the Quran? I actually took it a step further and I went to a religious scholar and I asked him how to read the Quran in order to understand it better. And the scholar told me that in order to understand the Quran and the history of it, you have to understand Arabic grammar and the history of the Arabic language. So then I got this list of almost 500 books that I'd have to read to understand what the Quran was actually saying. Joseph, it sounds to me like even at that point in your life, you may have had faith, but you also had doubts. No, no, no. I had no doubts about my beliefs. What bothered me was that this non-Muslim was asking me to understand the Quran. But the word understand was never used regarding the Quran, and I didn't even know what it meant. I spent five months reading and studying the Quran, and in the end, I came to the conclusion that it was not the word of God. In my opinion, Muhammad was, among other things, actually a killer. I spent seven months without a religion after I decided to leave Islam. And when Masoud went to visit his family, he asked me if I were interested in reading the Bible. And at that time, I didn't want to convert Masoud to Islam anymore. So I took the Bible from him and I started reading it. When did you actually feel in your heart that moment of conversion? 
It was 1987. I'd spent months reading the Bible, and all of a sudden I felt really happy, and I wanted to tell everyone. I was really excited about this. It was like I discovered this huge treasure. I felt like telling everyone, but Masoud told me, don't do that, because they'll kill you. And Jesus wants you alive, not dead. Joseph started looking for a priest who would convert him to Christianity, but that was difficult and very dangerous. In the meantime, Joseph got married to a devout Muslim woman. He still wasn't open about his newfound faith, but then their son was born on December the 25th. I thought it was a good thing directly from God that my son was born on the 25th of December because it actually made me more attached to my wife and to my son. So I asked my Christian friends to pray for my wife and she started getting suspicious because I was starting to leave on Sundays all the time. And at some point she was asking so many questions that I had to confess to her that I was going to church. She actually thought you were having an affair, didn't she? Of course, that's what any Arab woman would think. When you confessed to your wife that you weren't having an affair, how did she react to that? After I told her, she left the house. So I ran away immediately because I thought she was going to tell her family that I'd become Christian and then they'd come after me. After three days, I realized no one was coming after me. So I called her up to ask her if she had told anyone in her family. She said she hadn't, so I asked her to come home again, and she did. I just want to stress that I did not push my wife to become Christian. She decided to become Christian for herself, not for me. So now we went looking for a priest who could baptize us, and we finally found one and he started counseling us. Sometimes we'd go to church twice a week before we got baptized. But when did your family find out that you had converted to Christianity, and what happened? My side of the family would travel every Thursday to the Shia city Karbala in the south of Iraq. But we reached a point where we weren't going with them anymore. I just wasn't interested. And then one day, I was asked to come and meet with my brothers at my house. And when I arrived, they were all standing there with pistols in their hands. And then they put their pistols to my head and they handcuffed me, and they took me to see our father. There was this long discussion with our father, and then finally he said, I could never accept one of my sons, a Shia, becoming a Sunni, yet alone a Christian. After that discussion ended, we went to see the highest spiritual authority, the Ayatollah. But at that point, I didn't know how they found out I was Christian. So I asked the Ayatollah what their evidence was for thinking I was Christian. My father said that they'd found the New Testament and the Old Testament in my library. So I said, well, that's not evidence of anything because I also have poetry and medical books in my library, but they don't make me a poet or a doctor. Then my father said, but we have other evidence because we asked your four-year-old son where you go every Sunday because you disappear every Sunday, and your son made the sign of the cross. Well, there's no way a four-year-old boy from a conservative Muslim family would ever know what that sign was. Uh-oh. So what'd they do? When they came up with this bit of evidence, I was speechless. I couldn't argue anymore. So my father and the Ayatollah went into another room and came back with a written fatwa. It said that if they could prove that I was Christian, they were allowed to kill me. But they had to find the proof. 
After that, they put me in the trunk of the car, and I just thought they were going to kill me and dump me somewhere in the desert. Did you really think you were going to die right then, Joseph? Oh, yeah. I had no doubt they were going to kill me. They had the fatwa, and they were doing everything by the book. There was no doubt in my mind that they'd just kill me. Joseph's story continues right after the break. When the state run continues, stay with us. This is The State Marine. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Today's show, Because I Had To. Joseph Fidel is from a family claiming to be descended from the Prophet Muhammad. But Joseph secretly converted to Christianity. And when his family suspected what was going on, they got a fatwa to kill him. But they needed proof. So they had Joseph locked up and interrogated. I spent a total of 16 months in prison. The first three months I was tortured. Not every day, sometimes every two or three days. And the questions were always the same. Who are the Christians who helped you? Which priest and which church? They wanted names. I don't consider myself to be a hero or a particularly courageous person, but with the help of the Lord, I was able to survive. I knew that this was part of becoming Christian. Would it have helped you to get out of prison if you had told them the names of the people who had helped you? Yes, of course they would have released me if I'd given them names. Maybe people won't believe this, but in prison, I just took whatever came my way the whole time. And then suddenly, I was released. They put me in a taxi, they drove me three kilometers from the prison, and they just dumped me on the street. And I'd had no communication whatsoever with my family during the whole time. And when I was in prison, my second child, our daughter, was born. So I really wanted to see how my family was doing now. So what was it like to come home? How did your whole family react? The way they received me was totally the opposite from what I was expecting. There was music, there was shooting in the air, there were festivities, and the sheep were slaughtered. People from all over Iraq came to congratulate me on my safe return. Then I learned that my family had spread the rumor that I was in prison because of political reasons. Of course they couldn't take the shame of telling everyone that their son had become a Christian. That would have shamed the whole family. Your father was one of the people responsible for your being sent to prison and being tortured. What did he say to you when you saw him? The moment my father saw me, he hugged and kissed me. But there was no conversation between us. From that moment on, both my father and I avoided any discussion with each other. Our relationship was over. Joseph was free, but still afraid he might get killed. So he fled with his wife and children to Jordan. And soon after they got there, it was his son's birthday. So Joseph went out to get him a present. But on the way back, I got stopped suddenly by a car. 
and four of my brothers and my uncle were in the car and they said to me, we're in a strange country here and we don't want strangers getting involved, no police or anything, and we'd just like to talk to you, so can you get in the car? Oh man, what happened? Well, I got in the car with them. But they had pistols and weapons, and I wasn't expecting any of that. And then they drove the car for about 30 minutes until we arrived in a valley. I actually had no idea where we were. Then they said that my father told them to have me brought back, dead or alive. And then the tone of the conversation changed, and my uncle started threatening me. What did he say? My uncle said, there's a fatwa to kill you, and we could very easily kill you, and we'd just leave your body here. My brothers pointed out that my wife would have no way to keep herself going in a strange country with me dead. She'd have to come back to Iraq. So I said, look, if you want to kill me, just kill me. And then my uncle pointed the gun at me. And then he said something that was really surprising for me to hear from a Muslim. It was like something a Christian would say. He said, He whom the Messiah has touched can never turn back. He said these words, these very strange, peculiar words. And then what did he do? He fired a shot into the air, and then he said I should run for my life. So I did. I ran for my life. And the further I ran from them, the more they shot at me. Then I fell down. I felt something in my foot. I lost consciousness, and the next thing I knew, I woke up in the hospital. So now Joseph had to flee Jordan as well. And in 2001, he and his family got a visa to France, where he lives today. So I asked him the question you might be wondering. Does he feel safe there? Yes, at the beginning I felt very safe in France. I even started to press the gospel in Muslim areas. But after my book came out, I started getting threats, death threats. So now for the second time I had to leave home. I also had to make sure that there were no pictures of myself on the internet and to keep my address secret. Are you still in touch with your family back in Iraq? Yes. After two years and four months, I found the telephone number of one of my brothers and I phoned him and I learned that my father had passed away. Now we have contact every three or four months. What's it like to talk with the people who chased you down and threatened you and allowed you to go into jail and be tortured and, and shot at you and almost killed you? What's that like? It was very, very difficult in the beginning. But the most difficult thing is to do what Jesus asks us to do, and that's to forgive. Do you think you can ever go home? Well, my dream is to go back one day. I actually feel my place is to be in Iraq right now, and also to spread the gospel in Iraq. But there's nothing, nothing that could protect me there. The law and the situation on the ground, it's, it's all very dangerous. But deep inside, I feel like I should be there. But can you? Will your family let you go back? Have they forgiven you? 
Of course, they haven't forgiven me. And they won't ever agree to my coming back. It's not possible for me to go back. I'm shameful to them. I guess the question I'm asking you, and I think people listening to this really want to know is, Joseph, is if you go back to Iraq, will they try and kill you again? Well, there's no question that they'd kill me because there's a fatwa against me. They'd rather have me killed than bring shame on the family. But I face the same risks here in France, and I'm actually expecting that one of these days I'm going to get killed. And my wife and children are prepared for that. Do I understand you correctly? Do you think that you are expecting that someday in the near future that you will be murdered? I'm a million percent sure. I give public lectures, also in schools. I have face-to-face discussions with Muslims. But the prospect of dying doesn't make me sad. I actually feel it's an honor, one that I don't even deserve. So, what you're saying is, you expect to be murdered, you expect to be martyred, and it will have been worth it. More than worth it. And my death won't be the end. It'll be the beginning of life for me. It's definitely worth it. I spoke with Joseph Fidel, which is his pen name from France. You can see a link to his book, The Price to Pay, on our website, TSWI.org. That's tiswi.org. Or we'll put it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash TSWI.org. You're listening to The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and we've called today's show Because I Had To. And that's exactly what a man in Beijing said to authorities after he got caught defrauding the healthcare system. Liao Dan made national headlines in China for cheating the system for four years. He wanted to save the life of his wife, Du Jinling. Here's their story. In 2007, we found out she had kidney disease. The doctor, who's an expert, told me, with your condition, you should have a kidney transplant. If you don't, you won't have much time left. When he said that, I cried. She felt weak all the time, and her face and legs were bloated. She was sick, so I had to take her to a doctor. I couldn't let her die at home. I suggested that I shouldn't go to the hospital, because the doctors told me that without a kidney transplant, I wouldn't live very long anyhow. So a hospital stay would just be a waste of money. But my husband said, no, let's treat the illness for a while, and then we'll see. I didn't think twice about it. I just wanted to make her better. She spent less than 20 days in the hospital, but that already cost more than 2,000 euros. And when she came out, she still had to keep having dialysis. 
Treatments at the hospital cost 5,000 yuan a month. That's as much as we could afford in a whole year. So we were spending money all the time without having any income. By the end of the year, we'd spent all our savings, and he started to borrow money. With the reimbursement system here, it doesn't matter if the hospital costs are 10,000 or 100,000 or a million yuan. You have to pay it in full first. And then you get reimbursed three months later. I could wait, but could my wife wait? The hospital certainly wouldn't. He was always telling me I shouldn't think about money. So after a while, I stopped thinking about money. Sure, sometimes we couldn't afford food. But for the last year, our neighbors knew I wasn't eating well, so they all gave me food. If I hadn't gotten the fake stamp made, I would have had to borrow the money. But it would have never been enough, and she would have died. It was on Tuesday, February 21st. I took her to the hospital for dialysis. When I took the elevator, two guys followed me. I didn't know them, so I didn't really pay attention to them. Then, when I sat down, the police came up to me, and one of them showed me his badge and said, I'm a police officer. I knew immediately what was going on, because I knew what I had done. Then after my wife had finished her dialysis, they took me to a police station and questioned me. When the police came to our home to get the fake stamp, I didn't know what happened. I didn't dare ask, but I was thinking, did he rob someone? Did he steal something? No. When they came to get the stamp and saw how we were living, they said, with her condition, what else could you do? And I just sat on my stool and couldn't think clearly. How did he even get the stamp made? Later on, I hated him so much. I was thinking, if you hadn't have done this, you wouldn't have been arrested. Now look what happened. I'm home alone with no one to take care of me, and no one to take care of our child either. I hated him. When my son came back home from school, I told him that his father hadn't paid for my dialysis for four years, and that he owed the hospital 150,000 yuan, and that the hospital sued him, and that he got arrested. The reason I did this was that I had no choice. I wanted to save her life. What else could I do? Then I thought again and realized that what he did was all for me. And without me, he wouldn't have done it. It may not have been the right thing to do, but he did it for me. The blood vessels on my arm are all collapsed, so I don't have any strength. I could cook simple foods, but I mostly depend on my husband. Like sewing. I can do that, but I can't be too tired. I need him for everything. Last year, my period went on for three months. He washed all my trousers because I couldn't move. 
and he had to change my clothes once, sometimes twice a day. He washed all my clothes. When I couldn't take a bath, he washed my body. Here I am, sick and all, and he still takes care of me so well. I just bear all this by myself. I accept the fact that I got myself into this situation. It isn't easy for her to be married to me either, because in the past my wife had to work and support me and my son, because I didn't have a job. I did wrong, and I should apologize to the hospital, and I admit that I did wrong. But whether the hospital itself or the healthcare system has made mistakes or committed wrongs too, well, you can judge that for yourself. I don't know what will happen when the legal judgment finally comes down. The hospital has already been repaid by a businessman named Mr. Chen. He said he donated the money, not because he wanted to encourage me to do something like this again, but because he hoped the court might be lenient with my sentence. I joked about this with him. He said, if they put me away and we don't see each other again in this life, the first thing you should do is take care of our son. I said, don't worry, you just go. And then he said, in my next life, I'll never marry you because you made so much trouble for me. I replied, I wasn't sick when I married you. I got the disease in your home, so don't say that. You've treated me so well, I'll make sure I find you in the next life. If I ever had to do it over, what would I do? Well, if the problem were the same, and my wife had this disease, I would do exactly the same thing. Liao Dan and his wife, Du Jinling, in Beijing. Liao is still awaiting his sentence. You can see a picture of them on our website, tswi.org, tiswi.org. And you can leave a comment there on anything you've heard in the show or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash tswi.org. Coming up, a Hollywood producer has it all until the day the accident changed everything. More than a third of the right side of my brain was destroyed. Uh, my pelvis was crushed, broken more than three times, both in front and in back. Both arms were broken, and all but one of my ribs was crushed. I was in the deepest level of coma, called a Glasgow Coma Scale 3, for over a month. A miraculous recovery and an amazing change of perception when the state run returns in a moment. Stay with us.
This is The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Today's show, Because I Had To. In the 1980s, life for me really could not have been better. This is Simon Lewis, who'd left home in England to make it big in Hollywood. I came to America, from obviously from England, for my accent, with a law degree from Cambridge University in England and a dream of making movies in Hollywood. And in fact, that's where I started in the 80s, in Los Angeles, working for TV producers. And in the 80s, I started managing writers and directors and then co-producing some of the clients' projects and TV specials for Howie Mandel and uh, the original film, Look Who's Talking, with John Travolta. St. Jerome's Hospital. Ah! John Travolta. Come on, breathe deep, breathe deep. Try to help me just try. That was Kirstie Alley and John Travolta, the talking baby, and Bruce Willis as the voice of baby Mikey. And it was a big hit. Uh, And from that, I had the opportunity to... executive producer show for Home Box Office, and that won some Emmys. In the 1980s, life for me really could not have been better. And then Simon's life did, in fact, get better. A beautiful lady showed up on my doorstep one day because she didn't have a ride to a weekend I'd been invited to in Lake Tahoe. So I drove up with her. We had the weekend, and by the end of the weekend, driving back down to Los Angeles, it occurred to me that she'd never mentioned having a boyfriend. And I invited her out. And a year later, we got married. It was truly a perfect marriage. Um, My wife worked as a uh, promotional person at the Los Angeles Music Center. So she was very involved with the arts. And of course, I was involved with the arts as a film and television producer. And we just were perfect. Uh, In retrospect, I had no idea of the effect that the two of us were having on our circle of friends because we were sort of the perfect couple. But then one night in 1994, Simon and his wife went out for dinner. We were heading along a main artery of Los Angeles that goes all across town called Beverly Boulevard. And in a fraction of a moment, a cargo van, the sort of van that has two doors at the back, ran a stop sign And the police estimate was that it ran the stop sign at 75 miles an hour. And this is a little side street that has houses down both sides of it with two lanes. The Beverly Boulevard street that we were on has six lanes and is a main artery. It was not possible at 7 o'clock in the evening for a van travelling at 75 miles an hour to cross six lanes of traffic. And we were in the third lane. We never saw it. It hit my side of the car with such force that it actually bulldozed us across the street to the curb. And with all the force that was still there, our car took off and flew and hit another tree, hit a tree in midair. And in one of many almost fated coincidences, at that moment, there was a car filled with paramedics who were coming off duty from the hospital. And they run across and they look in the car and they phone it in. Uh, that there were no survivors in the car. My wife, indeed, was killed instantly, and they reported that there were no survivors, that I, the driver, was also dead. Were there any witnesses? There were. My internist at that time, in another amazing coincidence, lived just a couple of blocks away. He told me that he thought a bomb had gone off, and he said that everybody, it was just around dinner time, just after 7 p.m., everybody poured out of their homes to see where the bomb had gone off. The fire trucks arrived, no ambulance at first, and um, they cut the car apart using two jaws of life. And when they cut the car apart, they found that uh, I had a very faint pulse 
And because the hospital was so close, they managed to get me to the intensive care unit. And I received something like 45, more than 45 units of blood transfusions, which means that all of my blood was replaced more than four times over that night. Simon was rushed to hospital, but his prognosis was grim. More than a third of the right side of my brain was destroyed. That is beyond a massive degree of head injury. Yeah. Uh, my skull was crushed. Uh, my pelvis, which is the biggest bone in the body, uh, was crushed, uh, broken more than three times, both in front and in back. Uh, both arms were broken. My collarbone and all but one of my ribs was crushed and my chest was unstable. So I was placed on full life support. Uh, I was in the deepest level of coma called a Glasgow Coma Scale 3 for over a month. Normally, people who are in a Glasgow Coma Scale 3 either die or never emerge from the coma. Comas are measured on a scale from a low of 3 up to 15. And as you climb up what I call the slope of consciousness, towards 15. Those are the comas that you may have read about where people have recollections of their coma, where they hear people talking in the room and they can't communicate with them. And, and how about you in your coma? Was in, that the way it was for you? It's a world, a series of worlds, a series of universes, each of which satisfied all of my senses completely. Uh, I remember, for example, there was a boat and I was traveling on a boat through an ancient forest, traveling for as long as I could remember, and I could hear the sound of rain pattering on the roof, actually hear that. And I also knew that there was somebody on the boat, and if I just went up onto the top of the boat, the cabin, I would be safe with her. It was absolutely a complete, satisfying environment, and one would merge into the next. You talk about the slope of consciousness, getting closer and closer to waking up. What was it like when you actually did pull out of that coma? Imagine what it would be like, Jonathan, to close your eyes and then open them for the first time that you've ever opened your eyes. That only happens when you're a baby and nobody ever remembers what that's like. But when I opened my eyes, it was truly for the first time. That time I was, I think, 38 years old and I looked out on a new world. I wasn't aware even that I couldn't move my arms, I couldn't move my legs. I had no awareness that there were a whole bunch of tubes running in and out of me. And after a very long time, I began to look at the window, and I'll never forget, seeing light for the first time. And it fascinated me. I just stared at that for hours. There was a little light through the blinds and a little bit of shadow behind them. And it just fascinated me like a child. So were you like essentially a baby when you woke up and you started this long journey into recovery? I was essentially a baby. That's well put. I couldn't think clearly. I slept most of the time. Uh, there's something called initiation, which is the term that's used for what you do, Jonathan, when you wake up in the morning and think, hmm, I think I'm going to go to a restaurant and get some lunch. I didn't have any. I would be quite comfortable sitting by a window, looking out down into the street. 
looking at the light. Light is still, still so fascinating to me. I could look at light for ages. So that's very much, isn't it, like a baby. And, um, and what was, was this movie you were famous for again? <laughs> Simon can laugh now, but as his brain was recovering, he came to the realization that his body was broken and his wife was dead. And then after his recovery was complete, he discovered that he had changed completely. I see the world in a literally different way. There's two aspects to that. One is blindsight. When I look at things, if I look directly at something, I see almost as if I'm seeing a memory of something rather than the thing itself, because probably subconscious parts of my brain are being tapped for vision purposes. So are you saying that you see a pen in front of you and that pen is not necessarily something tangible? Correct. And the other aspect is I live in flat time, which is the past, the present and the future for me have no real separation. So as I don't necessarily feel like I'm really here, I have to be very careful when I'm driving. It was a big voyage of itself to be able to drive again. I have to be very careful to know that the objects I'm seeing are real, that the car I'm sitting in is real. Well, when you look back on your life and the kind of person who you were before the accident, what do you think of that person now? You know, that's such a very interesting question. Because what you just did, which is because you don't live in flat time, was you insert a separation by looking back to the person you used to be. And remember that for me in flat time, right now I feel as if I'm in the same moment as when I came out of my coma, and I feel like I'm in the same moment as I was when I was 15 years old directing my first film on 8mm film. And the difficulty is that I am so different. I mean, I struggle with the fact. My, I, my vision is a real struggle. My living in flat time, the effort it takes to try to maintain a kind of a schedule... So people don't see the changes because they can see that you're upright, you're able to walk. In my case, it's because of a state-of-the-art neurostimulation device that connects my ankle with my brain, essentially. But they don't see that. We walk on a canopy of flowers above hell. What do you mean by that? We live in abundance, and yet, right beneath us, at a single moment we can lose what is the most precious thing to us, which is our own awareness of our being that enables us to be who we are. But right beneath us is this hell, and it's so fragile. The canopy of flowers is the fragility of consciousness. It's three pounds of tissue that contains as many neural interconnections as there are particles in the universe. That's the canopy of flowers. It's more than a canopy. It's actually a cosmos of flowers. Would you ever like to see your own life story turned into a film? And if yes, what would the opening scene be? I once went to Lookout Point at Yosemite, which is that wonderful canyon uh, in Northern California, beautiful waterfall and so forth. And at Lookout Point... You can stare straight down, I don't know, 2,000 feet, straight down to the valley floor. So if you can imagine this scene, I'm standing behind this little thing, looking over the edge, down into an abyss. And about four feet from the top, there's a little ledge about three or four inches wide. And as I'm looking, a mouse scurries out. 
And I look at this mouse. It's there because even though it's on the edge of an abyss, the wind has blown some seeds there, there's some soil there, there's these little shoots growing, and the mouse clearly has burrowed down from the ground level, down and has its burrow down there, and it's going out to get its food. And I thought it'd be very interesting to start a film with the mouse's point of view, following the mouse out onto this edge of a canyon, and uh, the mouse doesn't fall off into the abyss, but maybe the camera plunges down, and that's where it takes us into the moment before the 75 mile an hour hit and run, which again would be the canopy of flowers over hell, because the mouse could just take one wrong step and drop straight over the edge. I see the resolve from the beautiful scene into the boom of the crowd. Oh, man. Okay, so that's the opening scene of your film. What would the closing scene be? I can tell you what the closing scene would be, not necessarily of the film, but of my, of my life, of this chapter of my life. It would be to meet a lady and fall in love and have a, a child, because that would be the ultimate form of recovery. And what, how, how does that look visually? I think a car, a great lady with myself, and the question about who drives... And I sort of like films that end with perhaps a slightly open question. And the car drives off along Pacific Coast Highway and the audience never knows whether the new special love in my life is driving, insisted that she drive, or whether she trusted me to drive, even though I'm substantially unsighted. And then, Jonathan, the credits would roll. Simon, it has been absolutely fascinating speaking with you. You do truly have a completely unique perspective, and it's been wonderful that you've shared it with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Simon Lewis still lives in Hollywood and is now working in film again. His book is called Rise and Shine, the extraordinary story of one man's journey from near death to full recovery. We have a link to his site on ours. That's at TSWI.org, Tiswi.org. Next week's The State We're In may well be our very last show, at least for the foreseeable future. So we're bringing together the people who make the show and we'll play samples from our favorite pieces and tell you why they're our favorites. And I have to admit, it's going to be pretty bittersweet. But I should also mention that your messages of support and appreciation, literally hundreds of messages on our Facebook and web pages, have been overwhelming and completely uplifting. Thank you so much for them. Let let me just read a few of them for you now. This one comes from Richard Merrill in the United States, and it's pretty typical of the responses we've had. He writes, The termination of Tiswi is extremely sad and bewildering news. The show is of such inspiring integrity, quality, and relevance with stories of human courage, compassion, and humor that in turn inspire courage and hope in us, the listeners. Stories that penetrate and cross all imaginable borders, national, ethnic, and ideological. 
Shame on you, Radio Netherlands, for not appreciating what gold you had. That's some good writing. Now, a listener named Rishi in India had this to say, I really like to listen to and know about the stories and incidents and the lives of different people around the world. Without Tiswi, I don't think I would have ever come to care about them. I even picked up quite a few ideas that would help me while I talked to new people and strangers. And finally, a listener going by the name of Zan in Australia said, Your interviews are always compelling listening, but even more so, they are so very human. Through the dross of misery peddled daily through mainstream media, Tiswi has shown with its optimistic soul. I hope the miracle comes, and you are there on my radio come November. Well, Zan, and everyone else who's contacted us, we're working on that miracle, but, you know, we'll see what happens. In the meantime, that is it for right now. So what's the stateroom this week? It was 1987. I'd spent months reading the Bible, and all of a sudden I felt really happy, and I wanted to tell everyone. But my Saud told me, don't do that, because they'll kill you. The doctor, who's an expert, told me, with your condition, you should have a kidney transplant. If you don't, you won't have much time left. When he said that, I cried. Imagine what it would be like, Jonathan, to close your eyes and then open them for the first time that you've ever opened your eyes. That only happens when you're a baby and nobody ever remembers what that's like. But when I opened my eyes, it was truly for the first time. The State We're In is produced by Mignon Aylin and Deanna Steinbergen. Greg Kelly is our editor, Sid Fordham is our webmaster, and I'm Jonathan Gruber. See you next week for possibly the last edition of The State We're In. The next edition of The State We're In is our last show. So to mark the occasion, we're bringing in producers, past and present, to play the very best moments of our program. It's going to be riveting and sad and wonderful and really, really memorable, I think. So join us in one week's time for the last edition of The State We're In. Happy Friday.